Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Following is chapter 5 of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry from Book 1. The title of the chapter is The Hallowell Poem and the Legend. There is one manuscript which varies so much from others in its form and in its contents as to afford the strongest inside evidence that it has come down to us from a source entirely different from that which gave origin to other and later documents. We refer to what is known to Masonic antiquaries as the Hallowell or Regius Manuscript. As this is admitted to be the oldest Masonic document in existence, and as some very important conclusions in respect to the early history of the craft are about to be drawn from it, a detailed account of it will not be deemed out of place. This work was first published in 1840 by Mr. James Orchard Hallowell under the title of A Poem on the Constitutions of Masonry, in a pamphlet entitled The Early History of Freemasonry in England. An improved edition was published in 1844 and from the original manuscript in the King's Library of the British Museum. Mr. Hallowell, who afterwards adopted the name of Phillips, is not a member of the Brotherhood, and Woodford appropriately remarks that it is somewhat curious that to Grandidier and Hallowell, both non-Masons, Freemasonry owes the impetus given at separate epochs to the study of its archaeology and history. Hallowell says that the manuscript formerly belonged to Charles Thayer, a well-known collector of the 17th century. It is undoubtedly the oldest Masonic manuscript there is. Messrs. Bond and Egerton of the British Museum consider its date to be about the middle of the 15th century. Kloss thinks it was written between the years 1427 and 1445. Dr. Oliver claims that it is a copy of the Book of Constitutions adopted by the General Assembly held in the year 926 at the city of York. Hallowell himself places the date of the manuscript at 1390. Woodford agrees with this estimate. We are of the same opinion today. The manuscript is in rhymed verse and consists of 794 lines. At the head of the poem is the inscription, Hic incipient constitutionis artis geometriae secundum euclidium, which means here begin the constitutions of the art of geometry according to Euclid. The language is older than that of Wycliffe's version of the Bible, which was written toward the end of the 14th century but in Brother Mackey's opinion approaches very nearly to that of the Chronicles of Robert of Gloucester, the date of which was at the beginning of the same century. Brother Begman, in the Zirkel Correspondence, the journal published by the National Grand Lodge Berlin, has had several articles on the subject. He concludes that the study of early English speech indicates that the original manuscript was compiled between 1380 and 1400 in the north of Gloucestershire, or in Herefordshire, or perhaps in the south of Worcestershire, three counties in the west of England. With all respect to these conclusions, we remind the reader that the dialect study, while important as to dates, does not with certainty locate the maker of the manuscript, though it does show where the peculiar words were in use. He may have written the words far from where he was taught them. 
Lines 1 through 86 of this manuscript contain the history of the origin of geometry, or masonry, and the story of Euclid is given at length, much like that which is in the legend of the craft, which we covered in an earlier episode. But no other parts of that legend are mentioned except the portion which records the introduction of masonry into England. From the establishment of masonry in Egypt by Euclid, the poem passes immediately to the time when the craft come into England, and that's craft com, C-O-M, Y-N-T-O, E-N-G-L-O-N-D, craft com into England. Here the legendary story is given of King Athelstan and the assembly called by him, with this variation from the common legend that there is no mention of the city of York, where the assembly is said to have been held, nor of Prince Edwin who summoned it. Lines 87 to 470 contain the regulations which were adopted at that assembly, divided into 15 articles and the same number of points. The articles were the older collection of statutes or rules from which the newer points or regulations were made into laws at the assembly. There is a very great resemblance, substantially, between these regulations and the charges contained in the later or second set of manuscript constitutions. But the regulations in the Hallowell poem are given at greater length, with more detail, and generally with an explanation or reason for the law. After an insertion referred to hereafter, the poem proceeds under the title of Ars Quator Cornatorum, or The Art or Skill of the Four Crowned Ones, a title rarely applied to masonry in the English manuscripts. We have first a prayer to God and the Virgin, and then the legend of the four crowned martyrs, which ends on line 534. Now, this legend of the four crowned martyrs, and you can see the full details of this legend in the Mackey, Hugen, Hawkins Encyclopedia of Freemasonry, article Four Crowned Martyrs, is found in the manuscripts peculiar to the German Steinmetzen or stonemasons of the Middle Ages. Its introduction in this manuscript is an evidence of the common origin of the document, and, as Findel says, must be regarded as a most decided proof of the identity of the German and English stonemasons, and of their having one common parentage. But Brother Hugen holds that the legend, so far from being of German origin, is mentioned in English documents hundreds of years before there is historical proof of it being accepted in Germany. The details of this legend close at the 534th line, and the poem then proceeds to give a small and imperfect portion of what is known in our later manuscripts as the legend of the craft. It seems that all this part of the poem has been lifted from its proper place, and that in the original, the lines from 535 to 576 formed a portion of the legend of the craft, as it must have been inserted in the beginning of the second manuscript. First, because in all other manuscripts the legend precedes the charges. Second, because it has no proper connection with the legend of the four crowned martyrs, which is before it, and which ends on the 354th line. And lastly, because it is evidently an interruption of the religious instructions which are taken up on line 577 and which naturally follow line 534, the writer having praised the Christian faith and piety of the four martyrs whose feasts he tells us is on the eighth day after all Halloween, proceeds on line 576 to warn his readers to avoid pride and selfishness and to practice virtue. There is here a regular and natural connection, which, however, would be broken by the insertion between the two clauses of an imperfect portion of a legend which has reference to the very beginning of the history of masonry. Hence it appears that all that part of the legend which described the events connected with Noah's flood and the Tower of Babel is borrowed and belongs to another manuscript and to another place. Probably the copyist had two manuscripts before him, and he worked sometimes from one and sometimes from the other, apparently with but little judgment, or perhaps he copied the whole of one and then mixed it up with borrowed extracts from the other without regard to any unity of subjects.
The rest of the poem contains instructions as to behavior when in church, when in the company of one's superiors, and when present at the celebration of the Mass. The whole ends with the now familiar Masonic formula, Amen, so mote it be. Line 471 furnishes evidence that the poem was originally composed of two distinct works, written, in all probability, by two different persons, but in the copy which we now have, combined in one by the compiler or copyist. Brother Woodford also is of the opinion that there are two distinct poems, although the fact had not attracted the attention of Hallowell. The former says that it seems to be in truth two legends, and not only one. This is evident from the fact that this second part is prefaced by the title, Alia Ordinatio Artis Geometri, that is, another constitution of the art of geometry. This title would indicate that what followed was a different ordinatio, or constitution, and taken from a different manuscript. Besides, line 471, which is the beginning of the other or second constitution, does not fall into its proper place in following line 470, but it is appropriately a continuation of line 74. To make this evident, we copy lines 70 to 74 from the poem and follow them by lines 471 to 474, whence it will be seen that the latter lines are natural continuation of the former. So starting with line 70, he send about into the lond after all the masons of the craft to come to him full even draft for to amend these defaults a lie by good counsel gefit height might fall. Then 471, they ordained their assemble to be why hold every year wheresoever they would to amend the defaults gef anywhere fond among the craft within the lond. And I have to apologize, I don't know what most of that means, so I may have to go in and do a whole other episode just talking about um, basically translating that to modern English. The second manuscript seems to have been copied from line 471 as far as line 496. At that stage, the charges or regulations next in order have been given from the first manuscript. The copyist omitted them as a needless repetition, but went on at once with the Ars Quator Coronatorum, this ended at line 534. Then he went back to a preceding part of the second manuscript and copied the early account of masonry from line 535 to 576. The bare reading of these lines will convince the reader that they are not in their proper place and must have formed a part of the beginning of the second poem. Line 577 appropriately follows line 534 when the borrowed section is left out, and then the copying is correctly made to the end of the poem. The first manuscript was apparently copied correctly, with the exception of two insertions from the second manuscript. There is a doubt whether the legend of the four crowned martyrs belonged to the first or to the second poem. If to the first, then we have the whole of that poem, and of the second only the borrowed parts. This is, however, a mere guess without positive proof, yet it is very probable. On the whole, the view to take of this manuscript is as follows. 1. There were two original manuscripts, out of which the copyist made a careless mixture. 2. The first manuscript began with line 1 and went on to the end at line 794, but this is only a guess. It may have ended, or rather the copying ceased at line 470. 3. If the judgment just advanced be correct, then from a second manuscript the copyist made insertions in the following way. 4. The beginning of the second manuscript is lost, but from very near the start, which probably described the before-the-flood tradition of Lamech, the copyist selected a portion which begins with line 535 and ends at line 576. He had previously inserted the lines from 471 to 496. 5. We have then the whole of the first manuscript, from the first line to the 794th, 
with the addition of two insertions from the second consisting of only 68 lines, namely from line 471 to 496 and from line 535 to 576. Six, the first manuscript is without any references to masonry before the flood, but begins with the foundation of masonry in Egypt as the title suggests. This want was partly supplied by the second insertion, 535 to 596, beginning with the building of Babel, but it is likely from the words many years after that there was a preceding part to this manuscript that has not been copied. The many years after probably refer to some details that had been previously given. The account of the seven sciences found in all later manuscripts is not in the first poem only as inserted in this from the second. Seven. So of the poem in the form we now have it, the parts copied from the second manuscript consist of only 68 lines, which have been inserted in two places into the first manuscript, namely lines 471 to 496 and lines 535 to 576, and these have been borrowed from their proper places. All the rest of the poem forms the original first manuscript. If we hesitate in coming to the conclusion that the first and last parts of the poem were composed by the same author, it is because the latter part is written in a slightly different meter. This, therefore, leaves the question of where the first poem ends and where the second begins, still open to discussion. The variations which exist between the Hallowell poem or poems and other Masonic manuscripts of later date are very important. They indicate a difference of origin and, by the points of difference, suggest several questions as to the early progress of Masonry in England. One, the form of the Hallowell manuscript differs entirely from that of the others. The latters are in prose, while the former is in verse. The language, too, of the Hallowell manuscript is far more ancient than that of the other manuscripts, showing that it was written in an earlier stage of the English tongue. It belongs to the early English which succeeded the Anglo-Saxon. The other manuscripts were written at a later period of the language. Two, the Hallowell manuscript is evidently a Roman Catholic production and was written when the religion of Rome prevailed in England. The later manuscripts are Protestant in their character, and many must have been written after the middle of the 16th century, at least when Protestantism was introduced into that country by Edward VI and by Queen Elizabeth. The different religious character of the two sets of manuscripts is very clear. We see church influence very strongly shown in the Hallowell manuscript. So marked is this that Mr. Hallowell supposes that it was written by a priest, which we think is not impossible, although not for the reason he gives, which is founded on his incorrect translation of a single word. And the footnote that goes with that, Mr. Hallowell, in support of his assertion that the writer of the poem was a priest, quotes line 629, and when the gospel may read shall, where he evidently supposes that may was used instead of I, and that the line was to be translated, when I shall read the gospel. But in none of the old manuscripts is the flagrant blunder committed of using the accusative may in place of the nominative why or I. The fact is that the Anglo-Saxon man, signifying one, or they, like the French on, in on dit, as man did, one or they did, or it was done, gave way in early English to may, used in the same sense. Examples of this may be found in the writers who lived about the time of the composition of the Hallowell Manuscript. In the Aenbite of Inwit is the following line. In the wild words may zenith ein vif manners. That is, in the idle word one sinneth in five ways. Again, in Robert of Gloucester's Chronicle are these phrases. By this tale may may wise, that is, by this tale may be seen. 
Story of Lear, line 183. And best may may to him trust. That is, and they may be trusted best. The stud that he was at saw McClepeth yet Morgan. That is, the place where he was slain is called Morgan still. And the line in the Hallowell poem, which Mr. Hallowell supposed to mean, and when I shall read the gospel, properly translated is, and when the gospel shall be read. It furnishes, therefore, no proof that the writer was a priest. And now back to the paragraph. But the Roman Catholic character of the poem is proven by lines 593 to 692, which are occupied in directions how the Mass is to be heard. So ample are these directions as to the ritual observance of this part of the Roman Catholic worship that it is very probable that they were written by a priest. In the later manuscripts, we find no such allusions. Freemasonry, when these documents were written, was Christian in its character, but it was Protestant Christianity. The invocation with which each one begins is to the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but no mention is made, as in the Hallowell manuscript, of the Virgin and the Saints. The only reference to the Church is in the first charge, which is, that you shall be a true man to God and the Holy Church, and that you use no heresy nor error by your understanding or teaching of discreet men a charge that would be most befitting for a Protestant Christian brotherhood. On referring to the first charge adopted after the revival in 1717 by the Grand Lodge of England, we find that then, for the first time, the reference to church was left out, and claims urged for a universal religion. Thus it is said in that charge, Though in ancient times Masons were charged in every country to be of the religion of that country or nation, whatever it was, Yet tis now thought more expedient only to oblige them to that religion in which all men agree, leaving their particular opinions to themselves. That's from Anderson's Constitutions, 1st edition, 1723. Now, comparing the religious views expressed in the oldest Masonic constitution of the 14th century with those set forth in the later ones of the 16th and 17th, and again with those laid down in the charge of 1717, we find an exact record of the changes which from time to time took place in the religious aspect of Freemasonry in England and in some other countries. At first it was Roman Catholic in its character and under control of that church. Then, after the Reformation, rejecting the doctrines of Rome and the influence of the priesthood, it held the Christian character but became Protestant in its particular views. Lastly, at the time of the so-called revival, in the beginning of the 18th century, when speculative masonry received that form which it has ever since held, it put aside religious differences and adopted a liberal and tolerant rule, which required of its members, as a religious test, only a belief in God. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.